What is up, my dudes? Welcome back to yet another episode of Olympia Oddities. Last week, I started part one of my series on Chris McCandless, and we covered his early life, canoe trip, and hitchhiking adventures that led him to Alaska. This week's episode will cover his time in Alaska and the events that happened afterwards, so let's get right into it. After leaving Carthage on April 18, 1992, Alex moved north, crossing the Canadian border three days later through Roosevelt, British Columbia. Six days later, he arrived at the edge of the Yukon Territory and stopped at a public campground at Laird River Hot Springs. He wanted to set up a camp and take a soak in the hot springs. When he decided it was time to get back on the road, he headed out to the side of the highway and stuck his thumb out. This time, however, no cars came along to rescue him, and two days passed without anyone offering him a ride. On Thursday morning, he met a man named Gaylord Stuckey, who had come to the springs for a soak, and got to talking with him. He asked him for a ride after finding out he was hauling an RV for work and was headed to Fairbanks. Stuckey explained that his work had a strict rule against picking up hitchhikers. Alex's clean-cut appearance and use of what he considered intelligent language persuaded the man, and he offered to, dri- offered to drive him as far as Whitehorse, 500 miles away, telling Alex that he should be able to find another ride from there. They started driving and pulled into Whitehorse a day and a half later. While they'd driven, they'd been talking, and Alex was able to charm Stucky over enough that he decided to drive him the rest of the way to Fairbanks himself. He spoke briefly about his family, mainly talking about his sister, and was open about his plan of living off the land for the summer. He also explained that he wanted to stop at the university in Fairbanks to study up on edible plants. Stucky warned him that he had arrived in Alaska really early for his plans, and that Uh, Anything was unlikely to be growing yet, as there was still a few feet of snow on the ground, but Alex had his mind made up. They arrived in Fairbanks in the afternoon of April 25th, and Stucky stopped at a grocery store to pick up a big bag of rice to give to Alex. He drove him to the University of Alaska campus, telling him at the drop-off that, I've driven you a thousand miles. I've fed you and fed you for three straight days. The least you can do is send me a letter when you get back from Alaska. Alex agreed to this, and Stucky begged him to call his parents. All he replied was, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Alex spent two days and three nights in Fairbanks, mainly in the area around the university. In the university's bookstore, he'd found a guide on edible plants and the two postcards with polar bears that he'd sent his final messages to Wayne and Jan on. He sent these from the post office in town. During this time, he'd also managed to find a used gun in the classified ads. He purchased this gun, a Remington semi-automatic 22 in a parking lot for around $125. From a nearby gun shop, he purchased four 100-round boxes of hollow-point long rifle shells. He loaded up his pack and began walking west from the university. Four miles west of town, he stopped for the night and pitched his tent. He awoke early the next morning, the 28th, and headed down to the highway in hopes of catching a ride. To his surprise, the first car that spotted him that day pulled over to the shoulder and picked him up. He told the driver, Jim Gallion, that his name was Alex and he was looking for a ride to the edge of Denali National Park. He explained that he was intending to live off the land for a few months, and Jim noted that his backpack looked light on supplies for the kind of trip he was undertaking. He had only a 10-pound bag of rice, no axe, no bug spray, no snowshoes, and no compass. He was wearing cheap leather hiking boots that were neither waterproof or insulated, and his gun was too small to bring down larger game reliably. Alex pulled out a well-worn map that he'd picked up at a gas station and pointed to his destination, the Stampede Trail. The trail was rarely traveled, and not many maps featured it, but the one Alex had scrounged up showed the trail near the town of Healy. 
Galleon grew concerned at the boy's plan and tried to talk him out of it. He told him that he could go for days without killing any game, and that his gun's puny size wasn't enough to do more than piss off a grizzly bear, but Alex had an answer for everything that the man threw at him. When he asked if he had a hunting license, Alex replied, Hell no. How I feed myself is none of the government's business. Fuck their stupid rules. He tried asking if any of his friends or family knew of his plan and location, but Alex just explained that he hadn't seen them in years. Galleon offered to drive him back into Anchorage, buy him better gear, and drop him off wherever he wanted to go, but Alex declined his offer. About ten miles from the highway, it was finally time for Alex to be dropped off, but before getting out of the car, he gave Jim Galleon his watch, comb, and all the money to his name, 85 cents. Jim gave him an old pair of rubber work boots and a slip with his phone number on it. He told him if he made it out of his adventure alive, he should call him and they could arrange how to get the boots back. He also gave him two grilled cheese and tuna sandwiches and some corn chips that his wife had packed for him. Before heading down the trail, Alex pulled out a camera and asked if Jim could take his picture. He posed at the start of the trail, rifle in hand. After the photo was taken, he headed off and began walking down the trail and to his eventual demise. Jim Galleon headed back to Anchorage, hesitating for a moment as he considered stopping in at the Alaska State Troopers' post to let them know about the strange man who had just scurried off into the wilderness. Jim shook off the thought and decided not to, later saying that, I figured he'd be okay. I thought he'd get hungry pretty quick and just walk out to the highway. That's what any normal person would do. The heaviest item in Alex's pack was his library of books that he'd brought along, and by his second day out, he'd reached the Teklania River. It's thought that the river was probably thigh deep at this point, and he was able to cross it easily, unaware that just months later, the river would become a whole other monster. On April 29th, he fell through the ice somewhere, probably as he was crossing a series of melting beaver ponds west of the Teclania. We know this because of his journal, which he kept on some blank pages in the back of his book on edible plants since he'd forgotten writing paper. Nothing suggests that he was injured in any way in this incident, though. The day after, he was treated to a gorgeous view of Mount McKinley, and the day after, May 1st, he stumbled upon a bus in the woods. The Stampede Trail had been first blazed in the 1930s by a legendary Alaskan miner named Earl Pilgrim. In 1961, a Fairbanks company called Utan Construction won a bid with the state for a trail improvement project that would allow trucks to haul materials to and from the mine all year long. They needed somewhere to house the construction workers for this project, so three old buses were brought in. Each was outfitted with a simple stove and bunks, so they served as a shelter for the construction workers during the project. After 50 miles of road had been built, the project was halted in 1963. Despite the road's construction, no bridges were ever built, and shortly after the route was deemed impassable because of seasonal flooding and thawing permafrost. Utah construction hauled two of the buses out, but left the third out in the wilderness. It was located about halfway down the trail, and they decided to leave it in case it could be used as an emergency shelter for hunters. By the time Alex found it, the engine was gone, several windows were cracked or missing altogether, the green and white paint was oxidizing, and the floor was littered with broken whiskey bottles. Previous visitors to the bus had also left behind supplies, like matches and bug spray, and Alex decided to take up temporary shelter in the bus. Inside, on a piece of plywood covering one of the many broken-out windows, he wrote, Two years he walks the earth. No phone, no pool, no pets, no cigarettes. Ultimate freedom. An extremist. An aesthetic voyager whose home is the road. Escape from Atlanta. Thou shalt not return, cause the West is the best. And now after two rambling years comes the final and greatest adventure. The climactic battle to kill the false being within, and victoriously conclude the spiritual revolution. 
Ten days of nights and freight trains and hitchhiking bring him to the great white north. No longer to be poisoned by civilization, he flees and walks alone in the land to become lost in the wild. Alexander Supertramp, May 1992. Immediately into his adventure, though, he had difficulty killing game. His short journal entries for his first week in the bush feature the words weakness, snowed in, and disaster. On May 2nd, he spotted but did not shoot a grizzly bear, and on the 4th, he shot at and missed some ducks. It had been his intention to keep on the move during his time in Alaska, so he headed out on the move again, leaving the bus after staying for four days. It appears that he either intentionally left or lost the stampede trail around this time, instead heading north and west as he hunted. On the 5th, he was finally able to shoot and eat a spruce grouse, but went through a period of hunger again, before finally shooting a squirrel on the 9th. Before killing the squirrel, he had written, Fourth Day Famine, in his journal. His luck soon took a turn for the better, though. The sun was out so much that he was able to read at midnight, and the snow had melted almost everywhere, except for the ravines and north-facing slopes. This allowed him to gather rosehips and lingonberries to eat, and his luck-shooting game took a turn for the better, too. For the next six weeks, he lived off a diet of regular squirrel, spruce grouse, duck, goose, and porcupine. One of his dental crowns fell off his molars on the 22nd, but it didn't seem to affect him much, if at all. The next day, he decided to climb a nameless butte just north of the bus. The butte was 3,000 feet high and gave him an incredible view of the surrounding wilderness. Interestingly, his journals have almost no recorded thoughts on the nature or his thoughts about it, and is really just a list of what he ate and when. But this climb was enough to get a brief mention that just says, Climb Mountain. He'd been planning to try to walk all the way to the Bering Sea, but was having great difficulty moving through the brush and having to dedicate a large part of the day to hunting game. The thawing ground was also turning to mud, making his travels that much harder. He decided to abandon his plan, and on May 15th, decided to head back to the bus. He was 15 miles away from it when he made his decision, but he thought that it would make a good base camp for the rest of the summer. Back at the bus, he set up his camp, even writing a list of housekeeping chores on a piece of birch bark. The list had items like collect and store ice from the river for refrigerating meat, cover the vehicle's missing windows with plastic, start a supply of firewood, and clean the accumulation of old ash from the stove. The list also featured another heading, this one for long-term goals, and under it he wrote, Map the area, improvise a bathtub, collect skins and feathers to sew into clothing, construct a bridge across a nearby creek, repair mess kit, blaze a network of hunting trails. His journal entries during this time show that he was having a lot of success hunting. On the 28th, he wrote Gourmet Duck and managed to shoot five squirrels just days later. On June 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, he was able to kill a porcupine daily along with several squirrels and birds. On the 5th, he bagged a goose that was said to be the size of a Thanksgiving turkey, but his biggest game was yet to come. On June 9th, he shot a small moose, taking a photo of him posing with it and his rifle with the caption, Moose! Though the moose was on the smaller side, probably 600 to 700 pounds, it was still a massive amount of meat. Regret began to set in as he figured out a way to use the meat before it went to waste. It was against his morals to waste any part of an animal that had been shot for food, so he used the tips he'd learned from hunters in South Dakota in an attempt to smoke the meat. He butchered the carcass, made stew with the organs, and dug a burrow under the bus to use as a smoker. The preferred method for curing meat in the Alaskan brush is to slice the meat thin and lay it on a makeshift rack to dry it out. Alex's smoking attempt was unsuccessful, and after six wasted days, wrote of it in his journal, saying, Maggots already. Smoking appears ineffective. Don't know. Looks like disaster. I now wish I'd never shot the moose. One of the greatest tragedies of my life. He gave up on trying to preserve the carcass and left it to the wild animals. 
It was around this time that he decided that he was happy with his two months of wilderness living and that it was time to head back to civilization. He made a list of things he wanted to do before leaving, like patch his jeans, shave, and organize his pack. On July 3rd, he began his 25-mile trek back to the road. Just two days into his trip, though, he experienced heavy rains around the beaver ponds, and this blocked access to the west bank of the Teclania. What had been an easy-to-cross river just months ago was now a three-acre-wide lake covering the entire area. To avoid having to cross, he instead went up a steep hillside, hillside around the beaver ponds to the north before returning to the river at the mouth of the gorge. Finally, at the bank of the river, he realized it was running incredibly fast and incredibly deep. Alex had never been a strong swimmer and had confessed to several people that he actually had a fear of water. Instead of trying to cross it, he decided to head back to the bus, unaware that his decision would prove to be fatal. Unaware to him, just a half mile downstream was a cable with a basket for crossing the river, but since he had ditched his map, he had no idea that it existed. He arrived back at the bus on July 8th, continuing to hunt and gather in the areas around the bus. He noted in his journal that it rained for a week straight, but in the last three weeks of July, he was still able to kill 35 squirrels, 4 spruce grouse, 5 jays and woodpeckers, and 2 frogs. He supplemented the meat with wild mushroom or wild potatoes, wild rhubarb, berries, and large quantities of mushrooms. Despite the amount of meat, the meat he was eating was very lean, and he was eating far fewer calories than he was burning on a daily basis. He also finished reading the book Dr. Zivago, during which he had scribbled notes in the margins and highlighted some passages. Unaware to Alex, this would be the last book he would ever read. On July 30th, his diary takes a turn with the entry, extremely weak, fault of potato seed, much trouble just to stand up, starving, great jeopardy. For two days, he wrote nothing, finally jotting down terrible wind on August 2nd. The temperature had begun to drop and, the first, and signs of fall had begun to show. On August 5th, he wrote, Day 100, made it, but in the weakest condition of my life. Death looms as a serious threat. Too weak to walk out, have literally become trapped in the wild. No game. The journal is quiet for days, until the 9th where he wrote about seeing a bear, but missed his shot. On the 10th, he saw a caribou, uh, but was once again unable to fire off a shot in time, but was able to kill five squirrels. August 12th came, and Alex decided to drag himself out of the bus to look for berries, along with writing a plea for help on a torn-out page of his edible plant guide. This day also features the last words that would ever be written in his journal. Beautiful blueberries. August 13th through 18th are nothing but tallies to mark the day written down, and at some point during the week, he tore a page from Louis Lemoore's memoir, Education of a Wandering Man. On this page, he scrawled a goodbye note that read, I have had a happy life and thank the Lord. Goodbye and may God bless all. He signed the note using his legal name, Chris McCandless. He also took a picture of himself. In this picture, he stands by the bus, holding his farewell note in one hand, the other raised in a wave goodbye. He then crawled into his sleeping bag and slipped into unconsciousness. He most likely died on August 18, 1992, 112 days after he walked into the Alaskan wilderness. He hadn't seen another human being at all during this entire period of time. McCandless had been unaware of three cabins, two privately owned and one that was used as an emergency shelter for situations like his own, that sat just miles away. Unfortunately, even if he'd been able to drag himself there, they wouldn't have been much help. At some point in mid-April, someone had entered all three cabins and vandalized them. 
Mattresses were tossed outside, furniture had been destroyed, and any food had been exposed to the elements and animals, ruining it. The owners of the cabins believed that Chris was the vandal responsible for destroying them, theorizing that he stumbled ac across them during his adventure and flew into a rage at the sight of civilization intruding on him again. If this was the case, it doesn't explain why he didn't do the same to the bus, and the National Park Service does not, does not consider him a suspect. Chris McCandless's body wasn't discovered until 19 days later. Ken Thompson, the owner of a Fairbanks auto shop, was out moose hunting with his employee, Gordon Samuel, and a friend of theirs, Ferdy Swanson. They reached the bus during the late afternoon of September 6th. When they got there, however, they noticed something strange. There was a couple standing about 50 feet away, looking kind of scared. The man and woman hadn't gone inside, but they'd noticed a bad smell coming from the bus. By the rear end of the bus, a single red leg warmer was tied to an alder branch. The door to the bus had been left ajar, and a note had been left on it. The note read, SOS, I need your help. I am injured, near death, and too weak to hike out of here. I am all alone. This is no joke. In the name of God, please remain to save me. I am out collecting berries close by and shall return this evening. Thank you. Chris McCandless. August? Question mark. Samuel peeked in the bus's window and saw a Remington rifle, a plastic box of shells, eight or nine uh, paperback books, some torn jeans, cooking utensils, and a backpack. In the very rear of the bus was a bunk, and on it was a blue sleeping bag that appeared to have something inside. Samuel explained that he stood on a stump, reached through the back window, and gave the bag a shake. There was definitely something in it, but whatever it was didn't weigh much. It wasn't until I walked around to the other side and saw a head sticking out that I knew for certain what it was. Samuel was of the opinion that the body needed to be evacuated ASAP, but there wasn't enough room on the ATVs of anyone at the scene. A sixth person appeared at the scene, um, a hunter from Healy named Butch Killiam. He was driving a larger ATV than the others, so Samuel asked Killian if he could evacuate the remains. Killian wasn't comfortable with this and decided that removing the body was left uh, to, was better left to the proper authorities. He worked as an EMT for the Healy Fire Department, so he tried to use his two-way radio to make contact with them. When no one answered, he decided to ride back to the highway. Just before dark and five miles down the trail, he was able to make contact with the operator at the Healy Power Plant. He told him, Dispatch, this is Butch. You'd better call the troopers. There's a man back in the bus by the Shushana. Looks like he's been dead a while. A police helicopter touched down besides the bus at 8.30 a.m. the next morning, starting the investigation into the identity of the mystery man. Troopers looked around the area for signs of foul play, and when they found nothing sus suspicious, left. They took a camera with five rolls of exposed film, the SOS note, and a diary written across the last two pages of a field guide of an edible plants with them. The remains were sent to Anchorage for an autopsy at the Scientific Crime Detection Laboratory. The autopsy found that the remains were too badly decomposed to identify the exact time of death, but the coroner found no sign of broken bones or any internal injuries. Virtually no fat remained on the body, and the muscle showed significant signs of withering in the weeks that led up to the man's death. His remains weighed just 67 pounds, and starvation was cited as the most likely cause of death. He'd been wearing a blue sweatshirt with the logo of a towing company in Santa Barbara on it, but when they contacted the shop, the company said they knew nothing about the man or how he had acquired the shirt. The story made the front page of the Anchorage Daily News on September 10th. Jim Galleon saw the headline and a map indicating where the body had been found near the Stampede Trail, and knew instantly that this must have been Alex, the seemingly ill-prepared hitchhiker that he'd dropped off. He called the state troopers and explained that he thought that he'd given him a ride 
but the officer on the other line was skeptical. Six other people had called in just the last hour, all claiming that they knew the man's identity. Jim was able to describe several items that had been found with the remains, but hadn't been mentioned in the newspaper article. The officer then spotted a journal entry that read, Exit Fairbanks, Sitting Galeon, Rabbit Day. The film from the recovered camera had been developed by this time, so they showed Jim the pictures and he was able to confirm that he had dropped the man off and that he knew him as Alex. He'd also told Jim that he was from South Dakota, so that's where troopers focused the search for his family. These efforts turned up a missing person with the last name McCandless, just 20 miles from the home in Carthage where he stayed thanks to Wayne Westerberg, but it turned out to be a false lead. On September 13th, the voice of one of Wayne's employees came on over Wayne's truck radio, telling him to turn on the AM radio and listen to Paul Harvey. The worker explained that he was talking about a man who had starved to death in Alaska, and that the man sounded a whole lot like their friend Alex. He caught the end of the broadcast, and from the few details he was able to catch, agreed that it did sound like Alex. He called the Alaska State Troopers to tell them what he knew, but at this point the story was receiving massive amounts of coverage in the media. They'd been absolutely swamped with calls from those who claimed that they knew the hiker. He told them that he thought he might have his social security number on a tax form since he'd filled out two during his time working at the grain elevator. On the first form, he'd given his name as Iris Fuck You and his address as None of Your Damn Business and his SSN as I Forget. But on the second one, filled out just weeks before he left for Alaska, he'd signed his given name, Chris J. McCandless, and given his real social security number. Authorities in Alaska traced the social security number to Virginia and began looking for McCandlesses. Walt and Billy had moved to Maryland and no longer had the same phone number, but Walt's oldest son from his first marriage, Sam, lived in Annandale. On September 17th, he received a call from a Fairfax homicide detective. He went to the Fairfax County Police Department, where an officer showed him a photograph. He identified the man as Chris immediately, even with his thin frame and shaggy appearance. There's a few theories on what caused the death of Chris McCandless. We'll get into them now. The first is that eating potato seeds contributed to his death. When Krakauer spoke with Wayne Westerberg after McCandless's death, he was able to vaguely recall that Alex may have taken some seeds with him to Alaska, including potato seeds. He'd planned on planting a a vegetable garden once he was settled in the area, but no evidence of a garden has ever been found. Some believe that he'd grown hungry enough to eat the seeds, unaware that potato seeds are mildly toxic after they've begun to sprout. They contain solanine, which can cause vomiting, diarrhea, headache, and lethargy in the short term. Long-term effects of solanine can affect heart rate and blood pressure negatively. The biggest flaw with this theory, though, is that he would have had to eat a large amount of them, and by all accounts, uh, carried an extremely light pack during his time in Alaska, making it unlikely that he had more than a few grams of potato seeds on him, if he carried them at all. Another theory features a different kind of potato seeds. The guidebook he had covered a plant called the wild potato um, by the local indigenous people of the area. He'd started to dig for and eat wild potato roots on June 24th, with no harm done. On July 14th, he began eating the seed pods too, probably because the roots were becoming too tough to eat. A photo taken by McCandless during this time shows him holding a gallon-sized Ziploc full of the seed pods. The book mentions the roots being edible, but says nothing about the seeds being toxic. One page after the entry on wild potato in this book was an entry on a plant that looks so similar, it even confuses expert botanists on occasion. This plant was a closely related species, called the wild sweet pea. The only absolutely reliable distinguishing characteristic between the two 
are that the potato leaves have visible veins on the undersides, and they're invisible on the sweet pea. The book warns that the plant can be difficult to distinguish from the wild potato, and that it is reported to be dangerous. Care should be taken to identify them accurately before attempting to use the wild potato as food. There are no reports of being poisoned by wild sweet pea in modern medical literature, but to the people who had been living in the area for centuries, they consider them toxic and to be avoided. Plants in the pea family can produce alkaloids, chemical compounds that have powerful pharmacological effects on humans and animals. Morphine, caffeine, nicotine, and strychnine are all alkaloids, for example. John Bryant, chemical ecologist at the University of Alaska, explained that what happens with a lot of legumes is that the plants concentrate alkaloids in the seed coats in late summer to discourage animals from eating their seeds. Depending on the time of year, it would not be uncommon for a plant with edible roots to have poisonous seeds. If a species does produce alkaloids, as fall approaches, the seeds are where the toxin is most likely to be found. Krakauer visited the bus in 1993, and while he was there, he took samples of the plants growing next to the bus and sent some dried seed pods. These were sent to Dr. Thomas Clausen, a, college, um, a colleague of Professor Bryant at the University of Alaska's chemistry department. Preliminary testing showed that the seeds contained traces of an alkaloid, but more thorough testing turned up no indication of alkaloids, toxic or otherwise. With the pea pods ruled out, Krakauer moved on to another theory, fungus. He'd come across an article about fungus that commonly grows on many species of legumes during the summer months in soggy climates. R. leguminicola is a variety of mold that produces a potent alkaloid called swainsonine, and he began wondering if this is what could have led to McCandless's death. He'd been gathering his seeds during a period of rainy weather and had stored them in unclean, damp Ziploc bags. This would have been the perfect environment to grow mold. The mold doesn't kill outright, but rather over a period of time. It inhibits an enzyme essential to glycoprotein metabolism, so the body is unable to turn whatever it eats into usable energy. If you ingest too much swainsonine, you're almost guaranteed to starve no matter how much you actually eat. Animals affected with the condition do recover sometimes, but only if they were in good shape to begin with. In order to be expelled from the body, it has to bind with available glucose or amino acid molecules. When you have none to spare, it just builds up inside your system. In 2013, however, a paper titled The Silent Fire, ODAP, and the Death of Christopher McCandless was published. The paper, written by Ronald Hamilton, presented a case that the wild potato plant might have been toxic after all, but instead of an alkaloid being the toxic agent, he believed that it was an amino acid. Hamilton was a writer who was flipping through a copy of Into the Wild when he was struck with a thought that he might know what killed Chris McCandless. He'd known of the, less, or he'd known of the lesser-known World War II concentration camp, Vapnarkia. Um, the camp was located in German-occupied Ukraine, and during 1942, an officer of the camp began a sadistic experiment where he fed the prisoners of the camp bread and soup made of grass pea, which had long been known to be toxic. Suffering from the then-unknown ODAP poisoning, hundreds of male inmates in the camp began walking with limps, resorting to making crutches out of sticks just to get around. In some cases, they were unable to stand at all and crawled around on their backs. Once the symptoms began, there was no way to stop them. ODAP was finally identified in 1964. The paralyzing condition is known as neurolatherism, or more co commonly, just latherism. Hamilton noted in, in his paper that it affects different people, different sexes, and even different age groups in different ways. It affects people within those age groups differently. The one constant about ODAP poisoning, however, very simply put, is this. 
Those who will be hit the hardest are always young men between the ages of 15 and 25 who are essentially starving or ingesting very limited calories, who have been engaged in heavy physical activity, and who suffer trace element shortages from meager, unvaried diets. It brings about paralysis by overstimulating nerve receptors, which causes them to die off. Hamilton described this in the paper, saying that, The signals get weaker and weaker until they simply cease altogether. The victim experiences so much trouble to s just to stand up. Many become rapidly too weak to walk. The only thing left to do at that point is crawl. Hamilton approached Dr. Jonathan Southard, assistant chair of the biochemistry department at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, and persuaded him to have one of his students test the seeds of both the wild potato and the wild sweet pea for ODAP. 2004 testing had shown that ODAP was present in both species of the plants, but the results were still inconclusive. Krakauer sent 150 grams of freshly collected wild potato seeds to a lab in Ann Arbor, Michigan. The seeds were tested and found to have a 0.394% of ODAP by weight, a concentration that can cause latherism in humans. Krakauer felt confident in these findings and published an article called How Chris McCandless Died, detailing this theory on September 13, 2013. Just five days later, though, a journalist from Fairbanks, Dermot Cole, argued against his claims. He said he would be more convinced if he was reading a credible, peer-reviewed report. Krakauer decided more analysis of the seeds was needed and set off to get his findings published in a reliable scientific journal. He had the lab analyze the seeds with liquid chromatography mass spectrometry, which detected a prominent seed component with a molecular mass of 176. 176 is the same molecular mass as ODAP. Around this time, Krakauer discovered an article by a scientist named B.A. Birdsong published in the 1960 edition of, of the Canadian Journal of Botany. The article claimed that wild potato seeds were toxic because of a toxic amino acid called L-canavanine. As it turns out, the molecular mass of canavanine is also 176. The lab tested the seeds again and found that they contained a significant amount of L-canavanine, 1.2% by weight. Cattle who have been poisoned by it show stiffness in the hindquarters, progressive weakness, emphysema, and hemorrhages of the lymph glands. Krakauer, with Dr. Jonathan Southard, Dr. Ying Long, Dr. Andrew Laubert, Dr. Sri Thanandar, co-authored a paper titled Presence of L-Canavanine in Hydrocerum alpinium seeds and its potential role in the death of Chris McCandless. This paper was published in Wilderness and Environmental Medicine in October of 2014 and is the current ruling theory of what they think killed him, but it is still up for debate. Bus 142 was finally removed from the Alaskan wilderness in 2020 after two people died and at least 15 others had to be rescued from the area. The two deaths, which happened in 2010 and 2019, happened after travelers drowned while crossing the river. The bus was relocated to the University of Alaska's Museum of the North, where it will one day be featured as an exhibition. In 2007, a film adaption of Into the Wild was made. The movie shares the same name as the book and was recently added again to Netflix if you want to check it out. I'm definitely giving it a rewatch tonight. Thank you for listening to another episode of Olympia Oddities. If you want to support the podcast, leave me a positive review, tell a friend, or follow the social media for the podcast at uh, Olympia Oddities Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And until next time, friends.